Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime. This week on the show, we are continuing our season two journey into the UFO Table Moon Works. Uh, last week, we talked about the first two movies in Kadano Kyokai, also known as The Garden of Sinners, the movie adaptations of the Kinokonasu novels. Um, and today we'll be talking about the next two films, uh, the third movie, uh, Garden of Sinners, The Remaining Sense of Pain, and the fourth movie, Garden of Sinners, The Hollow Shrine. Indeed, parts three and four, where I think the table is fully set by yes. the end of these two. And I feel like I have my, not my head around everything. There are still mysteries and all sorts of interesting things remaining. But I do think this is where you kind of fully see the world kind of put together. And I am very excited to move on to the the remaining ones because this just so completely like pulls you into it. Like if you are someone who, you know, wants to watch these and kind of wants to know when does it all sort of like kind of come together. So I kind of have the, the ground under my feet. I think it's these first four together and particularly these two. I feel like I have the ground under my feet. So I'm very excited to talk about it. Yeah, because basically, I mean, what happens here is that this, um, outside of like some flashbacks and stuff like that later, this more or less concludes the sort of out of chronological order sequencing of the original novel, um, because um, by the, you know, we've got movie three takes place um, a little bit before the first movie and sets up her having the artificial arm and stuff like that from the first movie. And then movie four is more or less like takes place directly after the second movie, which gives us our whole setup. Um, and so then movies five, six and seven happen in sequential order after this. So we've kind of um, more or less arrived now with all of our pieces in place to then bring us to the the conclusion of the series. So I think, yes, it is, is very much um, these first four movies feel like they are giving you your full kind of like place setting with a couple of one-off stories giving you the kind of like thematic and atmospheric stuff you need to give you your full, the full scope of what Kata no Kyokai is. Yeah, so I'm really loving it. And I think, you know, something I'm just interested in talking about today, now that we've seen these four, and as you say, these are the ones that are told out of order, which I, is what I thought, but I'm glad you confirmed it there. Um is just the sort of deep structure of these four and why they are ordered the way they are. I think having seen it all now, I think it's extremely smart and interesting how mm -hmm. they do it and how they effectively sort of reverse 
action and exposition um, is really fascinating. And I'm excited to talk about that because these two in particular uh, play with that a lot. But all four of these, you can kind of put them together and there's a lot of interesting structural things going on. So, yeah. Yeah. And I actually had not remembered how much these two movies are very paired because the third movie sets up a lot of concepts like the mystic eyes of death perception that then are explained in the force in like basically everything about the fourth movie is set up in some way through things you see near the end of the third movie, um, which was again, this is that was not an intentional thing in how I broke these out. I mostly broke these out this way so that we could have movie five be its own episode. Because movie five is like a big giant two hour movie. That's as long as the fucking Kimetsu no Yaiba movie and everything. I'm yes. excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paradox spiral. Good name for a movie also. So where do you want to start Sean with, with parts three and four? Yeah, I mean, there's no real, like, other, uh, there's no, like, history stuff here, you know, again, this is like, you know, covering these as movies, again, they're more like big TV episodes, so they were all in production at the same time when they started making them, Um, so I think we can just jump right into movie three, uh, The Remaining Sense of Pain, um, uh, which is probably, like, the most, I would say, like, the most harrowing in terms of, like, the most to me, like thematically heavy of all of these movies because of the subject matter. This is when I gave the um, content warning at the end of the last um, episode that this movie is about sexual assault and rape. Um, And so the main sort of character of the movie in the sense of like the new character, Asagami Fujino, who is in the books. And this is the last of the books that I've read. I have not yet read the fourth um, section of the chapter uh, or fourth chapter of the, the novel yet. Um, but Asagami Fujino gets the most narration in the book. Like it's very much, she's like the primary POV character. Um, I think that is a little bit less true of the movie, although she still gets a lot of like, she's still like a major POV character for the film. Um, but yeah, so the movie is about her, um, suffering this sort of like repeated assault by this group of young men until eventually she awakens to her, um, special abilities and then goes on a murder spree in a way that's almost to me like, um, reminiscent of like 70s exploitation films, you know, like that kind of like rape revenge um, archetype. It sort of steps its toes a little bit into that genre. Um, and and this uh, movie, movie three, has always stuck with me a lot with its got a very rich like palette of symbols and like kind of like metaphors that I think it all kind of mixes together for Fujino's experience of what she is suffering from and how that like unleashes into the world and this ability to twist and deform things um, that she observes. Uh, and it's, it's always struck me as a very powerful story. Yeah, I'm really curious and, and excited to hear your thoughts on all of it, because having seen it once last night and not like lived with it for several years, it's it throws a lot at you. It's very heavy. Mm-hmm. It's not just the subject matter. It is also the visuals of it. Like it's, you know, it's a fairly graphic depiction of the assault itself and then uh, a extremely graphic depiction of violence. This is by far of these first four episodes the most violent there is. It's pretty hard to watch in places, the idea of the twisting of the bodies. It kind of amused me because, you know, uh, Jujutsu Kaisen has a character who does this, the Inugami, who like has the, he doesn't talk, um, but when he does talk, it's because he has these powers. And in Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, there's a big moment where he twists the like enemy demon and he yells like twist. And then the demon like twists and like contorts and dies. Uh, But of course it's a like silly cartoon demon. And in this movie, you're getting her yelling twist, but it's on human beings and their arms and legs and everything break and start bleeding because the bones are probably cutting up all the blood vessels. And it is just incredibly dark. Of course, it's mostly happening to people piece of shit rapists so like 
I think it is also intentionally challenging and I think this is where it intersects with some of the exploitation movies you're talking about Sean it is intersecting with those ideas of pushing the audience to think about what they will and not will and will not condone and will and will not cheer for in these sort of like righteous crimes because there's even a debate going on between our three main characters here Toko, Kokto, and Shiki of like is the murder justified? Is it completely wrong no matter what the reason is for? Or do we kind of, and Kokto is kind of like in the middle of these extremes, kind of wanting mm-hmm. to think about it, kind of wanting to resist the urge for violence, but also understanding it. And then there's all these other things, that, as you say, symbolically get complicated because the movie starts with her having this unseen injury that uh, I mean we see it in so much as we see there's an assault but we don't know the specific source of this injury she has when she meets Kokto and then we move on from there and this injury keeps shifting what it is what it means can it be healed can it not be what does it stand in for it's intentionally a very slippery multivalent symbol that I think a lot of this movie starts from a place that's maybe pretty familiar in thoughtful stories about rape and sexual assault, the idea of the scars that you can't see and that, you know, it doesn't go away and then continually complicates and makes that symbol more and more multivalent and multi-meaningful. And in a way that, like I said, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as someone who's sat with this for longer because there's so much going on in this one. Yeah, because yes, I think you're exactly right that there, it feels like it's got this like big, soup or something of different symbols that it is throwing together where you've got Fujino's um, insensitivity to pain, right? So she can't feel pain, which is a thing we later learn it was is not a natural condition. It was something imposed upon her by her father, which I think is very significant, right? It's a way to suppress her powers. So she has like cut herself off from the world around her as Toko defines it. I, this is a line I've always uh, has stuck with me is, is that like, it's probably for hard for Eve to even feel the sensation of being alive is probably hard for her to understand because she has, it's because insensitivity to pain is not just insensitivity to pain. It's insensitivity to physical sensation. Um, and so that sense of like, it's probably hard for her to even feel that she is alive Um, And she suffers these abuses that like the abuses become more intensive because she doesn't physically respond to it in any way because of her being closed off and her being insensitive until it reaches this breaking point, awakens her powers. Her powers are to twist things that she sees, mostly people, into um, lumps of meat, as, as Shiki calls one of them in another scene that has just amazing dialogue. Um, and then, and then all that is also, you have this like mysterious abdominal injury where she's constantly like cradling her abdomen, um, which I think is again, also like very symbolically suggestive with the rape, um, of like, what is this, this pain, this remaining, the remaining sense of pain as it is called, um, that even though she has this insensitivity to pain, she is now feeling pain. That pain cannot go away. It is internal and she is, has no way of removing it and is destroying everything around her because there's nothing she can do about this pain she's now feeling. And so I think all of those things, that insensitivity, the like phantom pain she has, her magical powers, um, all that jumbles together into this very rich, I think, complex, very emotional series of symbols and metaphors that I don't think there's any way for me to like 
I don't think there's a way to fully untangle, like, this is just what it is saying about, like, sexual assault and rape. Um, this is what it's saying about pain or and things like that. I think it is identifying how messy and complex all of these things are and making and really, I think, challenging you to try to sort of come to grips with this this bundle of like complex ideas it's throwing at you. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think this is a, you know, extremely thoughtful at a minimum, and I would say fairly, you know, sensitive and and well-intentioned depiction of sexual assault. And it's a very, 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 very tricky subject to mm-hmm. tackle on. on It's a tricky subject to tackle in any narrative medium. I think it is particularly tricky to tackle in any kind of visual medium like film or animation because you have to look at it or you have to depict it in some kind of off-screen way or suggest it. Um, and it's always, you know, questionable if you actually show any part of it. And it's not super graphic in what they show. Um, there's some nudity and there's some violence, but like a lot of it is left to like, you're looking at her, you're not necessarily looking at the assaulters doing the thing. Um, you know, but anytime you show it, there is the, you know, kind of trade-off of, are you just being exploited, exploitative? Are you being titillating to a certain, you know, segment of the audience? Are you... Uh, just, you know, by showing this, are you tr- unnecessarily triggering people? Um, but do you need to show some of it to, like, make the reality of it? You know, these are all, like, complex debates with no right answer. I think we've come to a place in sort of Hollywood and, like, American TV where I think it's generally just thought of, like, don't engage with it because you're all so fucking terrible at it. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at the the brunt of, I think, like Hollywood and American TV media, it's just often very bad. I think Game of Thrones is probably the most emblematic example in recent years of something that uses rape quite a bit. And at its quote unquote best, I think it's a fairly surface level thing that it uses for fairly exploitative purposes to like make a, a like quick way to demonize a character and make another character sympathetic. And it feels very... Um, mercenary in that way and sometimes it is just purely for a kind of dark titillation that I think is gross right Um, and I think this is neither of those and I think it's it's thoughtful in a lot of different ways I think it brings up like for one I think this movie understands the pathology of rape in a way that a lot of media doesn't understand in that the whole idea of that you have this group of gang rapists and they become more violent because she can't feel pain, that gets its finger on something that I think is missing in a lot of depictions, which is that this isn't about dudes going and getting their rocks off. This is about a sense of power over someone. This is about sadism. This is about inflicting pain. There is no pleasure in it for them when they can't hurt the person. That alone, I think, is a insight that is true when you listen to people like you know, therapists and medical professionals and people who've been through this and will talk about the actual pathology behind this, right? You know, there are, you have fucking assholes like Donald Trump who will make comments about people like, oh, I wouldn't, you know, assault her because she's not pretty enough. And, you know, just completely misunderstanding, like, that's, your mindset is so fucked up because that's not what this is about. This is about power and this is about domination and also you are a fucking rapist. Um... And, like, I think this is a movie that just through that basic, you know, the fantasy metaphor that they start putting into it, just on that first order level, I think it has complicated it in a way that means it is having a serious discussion about it, you know? Yeah, and I think, it, you know, and obviously, like, anybody is free to, to disagree if you feel differently about 
how well this deals with this topic. But for me, bare minimum, what I ask for from a piece of media, if it's going to be using this, and especially if it's going to show like direct depictions of it and everything, is right. I, it needs to be a story about it. It can't yes. be a spice you throw on top. And that's like the big thing with Game of Thrones is that typically... I mean, because Game of Thrones is almost never about anything because that show didn't have enough of a focus with any one storyline to be about something often. Um, yeah. But that's where rape felt like it was thrown into that show as a way to spice things up and to keep things exciting. Um, you know, it was like a sexual assault scene was put into Game of Thrones for the same reason a fight scene was put into Game of Thrones. It was to keep the attention on the screen to show something shocking and in, in violence in the fight scene. Um, and then, you know, a different kind of violence in an assault scene. Um, whereas here it's like this whole movie is about this. It is not yes. a thing that is thrown in um, to spice things up or to make something more exciting or to push a boundary. It is, it is a story that is interested in this idea and is trying to like tackle it and untangle these and like um, interrogate this phenomena of sexual assault and the effect it has on on the victims um and then also as you say like some of the pathology of the people who commit it as well um and that like the insensitivity to pain thing being a like a symbolic or metaphorical way to tackle that problem um that to me is like as like the bare minimum that a thing needs to pass to be able to be something that i'm like willing to take serious um on this topic and not just sort of be like fuck off like why are you even doing this is it has to be about this and it's very much movie three is completely about this like if you try to remove the depictions you shouldn't even do the movie because right. there because the movie couldn't exist the story can't really exist if you're not engaging with the material very directly as they do here i think you're right and i think this is a good way to say it because i think what people will often say is that if you're going to depict it you have to take it seriously and i think what you're saying is well, how do you take it seriously is it has to be about that thing, right? Yeah. You know, and I think you're absolutely right about that because there is just way too much media where it is a spice, it is a titillation, it is an exploitation, it is something like that. And, you know, I do think the bare minimum for, like, getting in the room and being worthy of discussion is what this is. And again, yeah, obviously, if you look at what this movie is doing and you take issue with it, that's totally fine. I think what's important about this is that it's getting to the point where you could have a substantive discussion about it. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't think there's a rape scene in Game of Thrones that is worthy of substantive discussion. No. There are scenes that are worthy of dismissal and scorn, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and this movie starts from the beginning. The first images in this movie are of the assault and of this thing happening. And it is very clear about what this whole story is going to be about. And it is messy. I'm not sure what I feel about every step of it along the way. Um... All I am sure is that, like, it is, it's not, it's meeting the viewer halfway. Like, it is trying to, like, open up and have a conversation and, and find something substantive to say about it. And that just, you know, that makes all the difference in the world. Because it is, I do think it's pretty rare to see something that meets that minimum threshold. As small as that threshold sounds, it's uh, one of the toughest subjects you can actually engage with. And so to engage with it meaningfully just, um, you realize, I think, how rare it is when you see something that I think really does do it. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Um, yeah, so let's like talk a little bit about this. I guess like I just wanted to start with the talking about Fujino, you know, as our main character and, and some of the stuff that you get with her, um, and and to entangle some of like the metaphor and the symbol stuff. Like one of the things that I think is obviously 
immediately one of the most striking things about this movie is her powers. And as you're talking about earlier, the like the violence you see of it, because the like twist thing is a thing is a power that you see in some anime. You know, Jesus Kaisen does it some stuff before this has used that as like a conceptual power is you're able to twist things in some way. Um, but this is by far the most graphic um, and, and, and feels like realistic way I've ever seen that depicted as some sort of like supernatural ability where it is like, what if you could just through psychic powers, like wring someone's arm, like it's a fucking towel, basically, you know, like it, like it offers her, her ability to twist things is so powerful that the physical human body offers no clear resistance. And so she's able to twist arms and stuff to the point where they be there they rip off because you have twisted it so much like again like you're twisting a piece of paper over and over again until eventually once you've twisted it enough it will snap um and you will have now two pieces of paper right um and that's what she is doing to these rapists but i think there's something like very evocative about the idea of like twisting being her power that she is taking these people that are that are twisted, that are like wrong, right? These, the people who have done this to them, to her, are, are fucked up and twisted. Um, and she is through her power, turning in them into something that is what they are to me. It's like, right. right you like, like this isn't, you know, I am making you what you actually are. I'm twisting you into the thing that you are meant to be, not the thing that you project yourself as this normal human being walking around your day to day life, but you are twisted. Um, and that connects to that the, one of, I think, this, this, my favorite pieces of dialogue and my favorite exchange in this movie, which is the first time Shiki encounters Fujino as she's murdering one of the rapists. And, and it is the one guy who says, like, he starts going delirious and just starts laughing. It's like, my arm is like a screw. It's a screw. It's a screw. Um, and he slowly dies. And then Shiki walks up on it and is like, what are you doing with that lump of meat? And Fuji says, it's like, what are you, you can't say that. It's not a lump of meat. This is, he's a human being. And Shiki's saying, he, he didn't die like a human being. No human being dies that way. Right. And if you don't die like a human, you can't be considered a human. You know, he is like, he has crossed over the edge of the boundary and he has gone into the world of the unknown, of the unnatural. And so he can no longer be considered a human anymore. Um, and that to me is a very powerful line of dialogue i think that's like you have because i think he isn't really a human not in like not in our like sort of moral and ethical sense we think of that term um like that guy has crossed over that moral and ethical boundary and i think like fujino has turned him into the thing that kind of he always was he himself was this lump of like meat this like sadistic flesh pile walking around inflicting pain on other people and he has now been turned into this useless lump of meat on the ground yeah, this is this is what I kind of started with. I was talking about the the way this movie kind of understands the pathology and the nature of the crime, right? Like this is again, I think so much of like pop culture or just general discussion of rape misunderstands the like this is not someone is like horny and looking for a good time and it's like normal sexual desire that is then output in an abnormal way it is abnormal from the core right like it mm -hmm. is twisted from the core to to want to 
hurt someone. You know, sex is not about hurting people. It's about pleasure. Even if you're going into like, you know, BDSM or something, the whole idea of consent means that at its core, it is still about mutual pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so the idea of that you and your friends are going to get together and your goal is to hurt someone. You're going to inflict pain by invading and harming their body uh, and taking away their bodily autonomy. That is twisted that is inhuman on that level right it is literally inhuman because you are going to strip someone else of something that makes them human you know which is their autonomy and is their you know ability to be at home in their own body uh and i think that alone is just something that this movie has a has an idea and a point of view on that and puts it into this very grotesque visual metaphor that then i think also tests the boundaries of catharsis to a certain extent right Mm. because there is something about when you see you get this long sequence where um kokto talks to uh keita who is the guy that um fumino is searching for and keita and kokto seems like they were friends once in high school right and now they're talking and you just get this very dry matter of fact explanation of what he and the gang rapists were doing and Kokto is sickened and we are sickened and then when you then go back to but but we don't start with what they did and then see the like the twisted bodies right we see the twisted bodies first and then we see this and so it's really testing the boundaries of that there is something cathartic about when you know what he did it's like I yeah I want to see his body twisted but when you see it it is also brutal that that to see the actual nature of it done is brutal um and there's multiple sort of metaphors and discussions going on within that yeah yeah and that scene in particular with kokto in in keita is like yeah it's it's powerful you just have that shot of mikia as he's listening to this in his you know it does the anime thing with the glasses where his glasses have like fogged over um you can no longer see his eyes um and it's like I think it, it tests the boundaries of him, of Mikia as a character. You know, we talked about last time he is this like almost uncomfortable level of like this font of compassion and kindness for people in a way that almost feels like pathological. And I think you get an extension of it here where, um, you know, he, you can see that he is capable of feeling like this incredible intense rage, but he is still incapable of like, He's not going to sell Keita out. He's not going to kill him himself or he's not going to ask Shiki to do it. You know, he he is still never going to cross that line. Like he still has like there is something about who he is as a person that he cannot like accept that that isn't like uh, that that is allowable. That kind of violence, even when you have been pushed to that end where it's like for me watching that, I'm like, nah, like, fuck him. Like, yeah, like, Shiki should just kill this dude. Like, why is this guy still walking around? I mean, the the stuff that they did to Fujino, and obviously, you know, logically, it must have done to other people um, that and other awful things. Like, fuck this guy. Um, but, but, right, Mikia but, but, like, but this is that. the question because there, but boundaries exist for a reason, right? Because if uh-huh. you, I, I agree with that, but I also think, like, of course, if you were to run a society that way, yes. nothing, nothing yeah. could work, right? You have to have some kind of, like, way of, like, a, a rehabilitative way of addressing crime because just killing everyone who does this crime, no matter how evil, and this is mm-hmm. about as yeah. evil as a crime gets, um, that won't actually stop the crime in the future or make the world better from what has happened, Right. And that is also, like, I think the movie is pushing you to think about that, that there are Mm -hmm. these dual impulses. It is the boundaries of catharsis, right? Like, 
even if this person on some level deserves it and on some level, absolutely, these people fucking deserve it, um, it, you then also feel the revulsion of actually going to that place. The like dual mm-hmm. catharsis and revulsion and also the sense that nothing is really solved from it, right? You know, the I think it, it, it means that like my one like thing that was kind of like worrying me throughout this whole movie is like, I don't really want this to end with Shiki brutally murdering this girl who has been so brutalized, right? Like this is feels like it's off. And the, mo- and the movie and the novel know that because what this actually ends with is Shiki using the violence to cut out the actual pain that this person has had or, or some part of mm-hmm. it. You know, we can talk about that symbol. But what ultimately, you know, there is a more productive use of retribution that happens at the end of this that hopefully resets or ends the cycle is kind of where it goes to. Yeah. Um, and, and it is like that, you know, that question of uh, like of that, that notion that if they if you don't die like a human, does that mean that you ever were a human? Right. If this is your end point um, that you are you are now a lump of meat and you have been your life has now been touched by something that is un that is in this context, like literally unnatural, something that is magical, that is fantastical, that exists in the world of like the Nasuverse, right on the other side of this boundary, um, some kind of boundary that exists. That does that mean that you are ever truly human? And she is like pushing these people into like Fujino is pushing these people into this literal like you are literally dehumanized. You are no longer have a human form, shape or life or existence. Um, Like how allowable is that? Right. And like from Shiki's perspective where Shiki herself seems to be on a boundary, right? Like her, her doing that. She is both, I think, kind of like, you know, she's bantering with Fujino, but I think there's something about the way that she is doing it where there's a disapproval in the way that Fujino is doing what she is doing, right? And that disapproval reaches a, like, culmination point when Fujino finally lashes out at an unrelated bystander because, you know, where she was crossing the street and almost got hit by a car um, and kills the guy off screen. You have an amazing line by Toko <laughs> on the phone. is like... What do you mean? It was just a fender bender and the guy's head got twisted off. Um, It's just (laughs) like a very vivid image. You know, luckily we don't, you know, like in the movie knows well enough not to try to relish in this random guy's pain who just happened to get basically in the crossfire where Fujino is now kind of out of control because of how much pain she's in. And that's the thing that finally pushes Shiki over the edge. Um, But you get that sense that Shiki cares a lot about murder um, as like a weird of a turn, like thing that is to say it's important to her. The idea of like to go about it the proper way and like death is very, very important to her. And as we learn in this and the next movie, like she literally can see death and she lives with death inside of her to a certain extent. Um, and so it is really important to her that it is respected to a certain extent. And that's something that Fujino in her like sort of wild pained rage is not respecting. Yeah, it's it's one of the ways in which everything we've seen so far is so clearly meant to be seen or at least deeply thought through a second time, right? Yes. Because all of this stuff in this movie, Shiki, like, and I think there's a very good, clear reason why this is placed before Chapter mm-hmm. 4. But part of that is that you are meant to be a little confused at, like, where does this anger Shiki has towards Fujino, who in every other respect is very sympathetic in this story, where does that come from? And when you see part four and you read it back, it does make a lot of sense. And I think what it's saying about death and killing and retribution and all these things is very interesting and complicated. And Shiki's point of view is very valid when you kind of know what's going on. Um, and it's just, again, it's it's something that 
there are so many benefits to the way this is ordered. And one of those is I think it makes you look at difficult situations and think and rethink them in that sort of sense. Yeah, it gives you these kind of like multiple points of view in like, as you say, like allows you to self reevaluate um, what is going on as you're presented new information, right? This part of like the metaphor I talked about last time of like, it is like a puzzle, right? And you're getting your different pieces and you're trying to find ways to fit them. And then once you fit them all, you can step back and admire the completed puzzle. And then now every time you, for like for me, rewatching all these, like this is my, like, I, I know the whole puzzle. I've seen the whole puzzle. So now that is all I see when I look at these different movies is I'm seeing everything as it fits into place. And that's like a very, very like, I think delicate balance and like interesting trick of writing and storytelling to structure things just perfectly to where the first time through when you're just looking at the pieces, it's disorienting enough that like, that it is a legitimate disorientation, um, but not so disorienting that it's like off-putting and instead is like intriguing to you want to keep on going and find the next puzzle piece because you're not kind of thrown out of the experience. It is drawing you subtly deeper into the experience. And it's so interesting because like at its most fundamental level so far, and I assume this is true going forward, the the basic shape of Kara no Kyokai is fairly familiar. It's a group mm -hmm. of like paranormal investigators paranormally investigating, right? Yes. Like... I have seen that in in and out of anime, and I can imagine watching some of these scenes, like where they're all hanging out at their headquarters or something. The more sort of normal case of the week, where you might even this is like twenty five minute episodes, and you can have a fun case of the week that's like a little gnarly and a little thoughtful. Uh, and of course, the distance between that and what this show actually is is so cavernous that uh -huh. it's obviously intentional. It's taking this like shape and contorting it and twisting it and making you look at it from a completely different vantage point. And that's part of what's so interesting about it. Yeah. As you say, like there is some like parallel universe, like supernatural police procedural version <laughs> yes. of Kara no Kyokai. Yeah. Where you've got like, there's Nikia the Kara no Kyokai NBC adaptation where they just make it a police show every week. Yeah. And Mikia is like your ever man, every man audience surrogate Toko's like the police chief, you know, who's like always kind of on the edge. Um, and then Shiki is your like cool, like the enforcer character that's with, you know, your feet on the ground, like actually getting shit done. Um, yeah, yeah, it is a very familiar structure, as you say, that has now been, you know, twisted very, you know, appropriately enough for this movie, like so far out of shape that it isn't until movies three or four that you kind of realize that's what it is. I mean, I didn't even realize until we I rewatched movie before that you didn't even know technically that Toka was a fucking mage. Like no, you, you don't, don't know that like yeah. she uses magic and shit like that isn't a thing you know until episode four. Um, and so yes, it it is it is interesting the way in which it it kind of disguises some of like the genre um, standards that it is actually using because it's so out of structure that you can't identify it until you get deep enough into the series. Yeah. And now I just love imagining coming to and leaving NBC this fall, The Garden of Sinners starring Mariska Hardigay as Shiki. It's going to be yes. great. <laughs> no. But yeah, but back to like this specific story. There's the entire issue where about Fujino's wound. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because we have, you know, it's a mysterious wound. We then find out it's a knife wound that she was stabbed. Then we find out she wasn't stabbed and it must be an untreated ruptured appendicitis. Uh, and then it's something that Shiki is able to remove and she's going to live. And that whole like transformation threw me for a loop in several ways. And it is because it like 
it it the symbol it starts at is fairly obvious and one that I've seen in other stories and it morphs into other places, you know? Yeah, I mean, because it, it yeah, it starts as a sort of like phantom pain, which I think is is what it is meant to be ultimately right. is it, it is it is representative of the trauma, like the psychological and spiritual trauma that she has undergone. Right. Um, Even if she can't feel physical pain, it lives in the body somehow. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and it has and it has ruptured, right? Like it has literally in this sense with like how it has been symbolized as an appendix um, and appendicitis. It has literally ruptured like the, the pain and the suffering and the, the psychological and spiritual trauma that she has suffered has reached the point where it has exploded. Um, and so it has exploded within her body and it is killing her. Right. Um, and I, yeah, and I think it's like an interesting, you know, you get this sort of like series of steps of trying to unravel what is this pain that she's feeling? Because also, you know, for there's a good chunk of the movie where you have maybe figured out because of some of the way that things were depicted that she couldn't feel pain. Um, but like you don't explicitly learn that until like uh, halfway through the movie, basically, until you, you finally get um, some of that exposition stuff that starts putting all that into context for you in Kokdo realizes it and then toko starts talking you through what that like philosophically and like experientially might mean for her um but then this mystery of her you know moving between these different states of sometimes regaining her insensitivity to pain right that's one of the reasons why shiki backs off that one time is because she sees that uh, fujino is in this kind of like state of flux where some where she's moving between this and it's like when she can feel pain she can use her powers when she can't feel pain she can't anymore so she becomes like quote unquote normal again um she she is on that boundary right of the the title um and it is eventually it is until like all this builds up so much because she can't get any catharsis she can't get any release right and arguably even if and as they say like even if she killed Kata it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't actually provide the catharsis that she wants. Um, but because she couldn't kill Kata, it means that she is on this long spree and out into the world. Um, until, you know, until eventually it all bursts and now she is like constantly in pain um, until it can get stabbed out of her with, with Shiki's powers. It is. It's a really interesting thing that I think I've seen this series do in a couple of places in these first few episodes where it winds up giving you a fairly like expositionally complicated explanation for the sort of the metaphor and the idea, but the metaphor does still have this sort of like basic idea that sort of survives through the layers of exposition. I don't know mm -hmm. if I'm explaining that right, but it's what I kind of get. And I think that explanation is right on the money because it's intentionally throwing you for a loop but it's also not necessarily fundamentally undermining what the basic idea you kind of start with is. It's interesting in that way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting process because I think there is always meant to be this like symbolic reading that for the audience stays true throughout the whole thing. And like and as the explanations change, it modulates the symbolism a little bit and it like I think it like puts it more into perspective and clarifies it a little bit. But then there is, as you say, there's like a more kind of complicated detectively series of like actual real world facts that the main characters follow as they are trying to piece together what this is in a more practical sense, um, because they don't exist in the world of symbolism. They exist as actual people in an actual world, even with fantasy stuff. There are still reasons for why these things happen. Right. And ultimately, there's this 
you know, part of it, I think, also is that the, the multiple layers of complication we sort of throw into it in that real world sense reflects something about the, like, the lack of simplicity to any of this, mm-hmm. in, of the discussion we're having, the lack of, like, a direct one-to-one causal, like, something that is easy enough to, like, identify and cut out, you know? Um, and that, okay, if it's if it's a stab wound, how could she still be moving around? If it's appendicitis, it's a burst and it's going to kill her and all of these different things. How do you read the, the ultimate ending here where Shiki cuts this thing out of her? I think having seen episode four, it seems like this is a, like, death element that she's able to, like, kind of get yes. rid of. And then this person has sort of life left in them. Um, is that basically what's happening there? Yes, yeah. So, um, Shiki has the, the mystic eyes of death perception which you have to be very specific with how you pronounce that because it is not they are not the mystic eyes of depth perception. Although we all that, have those. <laughs> yes. Um, but although that is an intentional pun. So in, in Japanese, they have intentionally tried to replicate a pun that exists in okay. Japanese. Although the Japanese pun is a little bit, I think, more elegant as it typically is because it's using kanji stuff. In Japanese, it's called chokshi no magan, which means like the mystical eyes of direct death would be the most direct way to translate it. Um, but chokushi which in this case is using the kanji for direct and death. The more standard word you would have that's pronounced chokshi would be direct sight or direct seeing, which literally means to stare at chokshi. Um, So there's a little bit of a pun on that idea. Um, But yeah, so Shiki can see death, um, like the concept of death that is, and and it's not just literally death and it's like, oh, I see death in you in like a person or an animal or living things. And that all things, including concepts, um, anything that has a beginning has an ending, right? So the perspective for like the, in the Nasuverse is that all things have a death conceptually engraved into them, like as a as an entity, as a concept, as a being. Shiki can see that and perceives it and is able to interact with it physically and able to seeing it visualized as these lines. If she traces the lines with her knife or whatever, or like her finger, I think she could still do it with, it will like activate this death that she envisions in the concept of the thing. So she is able to kill people that way. She's able to kill the ghosts in episode one that way. Um, in episode before, you have the scene where she kills the zombie corpse that she identifies as like, oh yeah, it's, it's dead, but it is still a living corpse. It still exists. It is moving. It has a beginning. Therefore, it must have an end. And she activates what that end is conceptually for the, for the thing. And so she's also able to use that to kill her appendicitis or like to kill the poison in her body um, from the burst appendix um, using her powers. So she's able to perceive the end of that um, and activate its death. And so she is like, she kills the pain um, inside of Fujino, which then restores her, presumably restores her insensitivity to pain. And I, I remember correctly, she also does pop up in movie six. So we will see Fujino again later in the timeline as well. So we will revisit this character. Um, but well, that is like Fujino the... reverts before. That's why Shiki goes yep. for this non-fatal killing the poison instead of the person because Shiki again has this like hard boundary for herself of like, yes. well, if she doesn't have the, if she has the insensitivity, she doesn't have the violence. I can't kill her because that's not the thing that did the bad stuff that I want to blah blah blah. Right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so yeah, so she cuts, she kills the 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 pain inside of her with her mystic eyes of death perception. So that is like literally what happens. Whereas I think, as you said, like symbolically it is about one, I think it's about Shiki, like seeing that this is a person worth saving. Right. And this is a person that does exist that, that shouldn't exist in the same world as Shiki. Right. There's a lot of paralleling across the whole movie 
about how Shiki and Fujino are very similar, and they're also extremely different. Um, they both have mystic eyes. I don't remember how much these movies get into the specifics of how some like the magic stuff works, but like, um, you know, this is a thing that like some people inherit these traits. It's almost vaguely Naruto-esque, which also has like a bunch of crazy eye stuff, right? Because there's a lot of cultural things that go into that. Um, but some people have these mystic eyes that have different abilities. They're extremely rare and very, very powerful in this world. Um, Shiki and uh, Fujino are both from families that inherit these lines um, or the, these eyes, right? Different eyes. So they talk about how um, Fujino is from, she's a branch family from the Asakami family that has these mystic eyes and she has happened to inherit them. Shiki, you know, this is part of why her house is so weird and we'll learn more about it, right? She has this weird, crazy manner in the fucking bamboo forest and all that shit. She comes from this long line of a family that can inherit these powers. Um, and she just happens to have inherited these. Um, and so there's that paralleling, right? There's there's a paralleling with like their relationship with Mikia that both of them, um, we find out that Fujino met Mikia once and has like actually a crush on him from like some sort of sports tournament when um, she would have been in middle school and he was in high school helping out. That scene is a lot more detailed in the book. It's a much more kind of like tangential here. Um, but you have that. And so you've got like this relationship to Mikia that Shiki has an ongoing one. Fujino like kind of crosses path, but didn't really have someone like Mikia in her life to kind of help her and guide her and like care for her as she exists in this weird sort of liminal stage. Um, so you get these like similarities, but also these profound differences. And I think it ultimately comes down to like, Fujino doesn't really belong on this side, on the same side that Shiki is. She shouldn't be here. She should be over there living a normal life. Right. Um, and that's, I think, part of also what Shiki cuts out of her. Like, Shiki has to live with all the things that she is. Um, whereas, like, Fujino shouldn't have to do that. Yes. Absolutely. It's really interesting. One thing I like about how... Because, obviously, you having, like, read the text, there's more explanation of all these things, right? Um, I think one thing that UFO Table does to, like, visually illustrate this that I love is that the characters in the anime have their eyes are notably different than most anime eyes because they mm -hmm. don't have pupils. They're like kind of solid colors. And then when you see the mystic eyes, you get much more sort of traditional anime eyes that have like the kind of colored iris and then the inner circle. And they obviously they have this kind of digital glow that they've added in stuff. But I think that's an interesting, that's the kind of first sign that Shiki and Fujino are sort of linked on that level is the way they do the eye illustrations. And I like that a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one other, while I'm thinking about it, one other interesting note with the Mystic Eyes of Death Perception is, um, you know, I think I talked about last time um, a little bit of like, like Nasu likes to revisit certain like themes and ideas and archetypes and evolve them in his work. This will be a thing we will see when we get to Fate Stay Night and Heaven's Feel and some of that stuff. You will see sequences and ideas that are very similar to some of the stuff we see in this movie that are like evolved and have changed. Um, one of those, like the most obvious thing that is like that in his work is the main character of Tsukihime, the visual novel that remember the, the light novels that Kata no Kyokai are were written first. Then Tsukihime comes out. The main character of Tsukihime is called Shiki Tono and Shiki Tono also has mystic eyes of death perception. They work slightly differently, but it is a, but, and them working slightly differently is part of him, like exploring the same concept. Um, with a different character in a slightly different genre. In that instance, it's like a, you know, a 
dating sim is a weird word to use for it, but a romance visual novel kind of thing with different romanceable heroine characters. Um, so these are this is one of the ideas that he revisits multiple times, the mystic eyes, the specific idea of being able to see death and what that means and being able to interact with death in a conceptual way. These are like themes that he likes to um, iterate on throughout his work. That's really interesting that, um, I, man, I, I so want to like read some of these, these different visual novels because it sounds so fascinating to me. Um, obviously, we're going to get a deep dive in some of the Fate Stay Night stuff very soon. But yes, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. But yeah. And uh, again, just the way I think the way UFO Table has done this with like there is such a good visual sensibility to all of this um, and, and how it illustrates a lot of these concepts without there is a lot of dialogue. Obviously, Toko is a very talkative character. Uh, in particular, but so much of this is just done through sort of mood and atmosphere. I think the music plays a big role in it, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, God. I mean, you have the whole like big climactic fight of this movie, which is definitely of like, you know, so far we haven't gotten a lot of the action stuff. You get some of the action stuff in the first movie, um, and then there's a lot in this one. Um, there's not really much action in the second movie. There's a little bit at the end of the fourth movie. Um, we'll get some more of that, like, it, you know, you'll get some more of, like, the UFO table style action stuff you'd more expect in, like, movie five and stuff. Um, but you do get a really good action climax here. And the very end of it, of Fujino um, on the ground uh, collapsed and, and Shiki straddles her with the knife. Um, and then Fujino, like, explodes, basically, right? She just screams, magare, 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 like, twist, twist, yeah. twist, twist. And then it zooms out to the whole bridge and the bridge like starts to it's twist so and the the all the windows shatter and everything as the music swells it's a really like that's a very iconic scene from the series um so much so that it was um fujino is actually one of the characters they brought into fake grand order in a crossover um event so she's like an unlockable character you could play as and that is the sequence they use basically for her ultimate attack where she <laughs> screams magare 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 and it literally like it goes to the bridge scene it zooms out the bridge twists how what that means and how that works is too complicated to talk about how the fuck any of that shit works in fgo and like how she is able to conceptually put everything into a bridge and twist the bridge it's a bigger conversation but that is like the scene they use because it's a very iconic moment from this movie it's a phenomenal scene of like of almost like a disaster movie thing, yes. right? Because you've got this entire giant bridge twisting and falling apart, and you've got Shiki and Fujino both kind of lost in the debris and everything that's going on. It's a, it's a real showstopper. It's an incredible sequence. I definitely I wanted to highlight that, so I'm glad you did. It's it's so good. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about catharsis, like that to me is a very cathartic moment of yeah. where like that's where it feels like. Like how like unfair everything is and unreasonable everything is that has happened to Fujino, who has not asked for any of this. All this has been stuff inflicted and imposed upon her. Again, even her original insensitivity to pain and stuff is not a thing that she was born with. It is a thing that she was that was done to her by her father, a father that is then trying to have her killed. That's something else you learn. Right. So that's another one of those symbols or like ideas that gets in the fold is like the way in which her life has been controlled by these like cruel men who believe that they have some right over her body whether it is her father when she was a child who makes a choice to to repress her powers and do this thing to her or now trying to like have her life be taken or these these awful men that she met that have been assaulting her repeatedly um that like her whole life has been defined that way um, and she had this one brief encounter with our like nice protagonist boy 
Mikia, who was very, like, nice to her, had his little line about how, you know, pain isn't a thing you should have to endure. It is a thing that you should be complaining about, which works, which is more poetic in Japanese because it rhymes the two words tairu and utairu he uses. Um, I think that was, like, a hard line to translate the way it works in Japanese. Um, but she has that one brief moment, but then never has anyone else like that in her life to, like, help her and guide her. Um, and so all of that, like, comes to the forefront, right? Because when she, she's having this flashback to that um, sports meet scene and meeting Mikia again after she has awakened to her powers and killed, like, five people so she can't, you know, it's one of the tragedies that she has, like, happened to encounter him after it is now too late for her to go back to that kind of life and do something about it. Um, and so all of that is going through her head and then she destroys the whole bridge. And that's, like, such a powerful moment of catharsis of this is fucked up this is wrong this is unfair everything that has happened just the whole world should destroy be destroyed and that's like i think what you get in that moment yeah it's i think you're absolutely right it is a great combination of like visual spectacle and action and then also you know with just the the plot of this thing and the story and and the emotions and the themes of it yes Anything else to say about uh, this movie specifically before we talk about movie four and, and obviously how they interrelate because it's pretty heavy. Yes. I mean, one, you know, this is also we see how Shiki loses her arm, which is oh, very yeah, yeah. upsetting. Uh, so like, this was funny to me because when she gets hit, Shiki is so like non-responsive. She takes it so in stride that her arm has been destroyed that I was unsure okay, is this the reason she has a prosthetic arm or was the prosthetic arm the thing that was hit and we ha haven't seen her get the prosthetic arm? And what it is is that she's a fucking badass and, of course, gets her arm twisted in that mode and then it's just like, hey, could you cut this off and make a prosthetic for me? It's pretty gnarly. Yeah, and I love Toko's, like, the super nonchalant, like, tone that Toko takes with it. Also, she's like... Oh, yeah, that's great. Like, yeah, I'll make you a cool prosthetic. It's like, you know, I always thought you needed something cool to go with your missing eyes yes. and death perception. So I'll make you like a cool robot arm that can grab spirits, I think is, is what she says. Um, and then I also I really love the the very ending of this movie. They get it kind of feels like it's setting you up to go into the fourth movie is that little conversation between Shiki and uh, Miki, uh, Mikia, um, where she says, um, you know what? I'm I'm feeling a little bit of a murderous impulse towards you, and she gives yes. him this like very like innocent smile after saying that, which is like the most cheeky <laughs> moment possible. It's like, you know what? I feel I'm starting to feel like I want to kill you, uh, Kokdo, and then she smiles at him. I mean, so it's like it's the first genuine smile I've ever seen since she woke up from that coma, um, and that's like what leads you into the fourth movie, which is about her waking up from that darn coma. Yes. <laughs> fascinating to me so i want to talk about the structure here because mm -hmm. you know it, it it's actually not that complicated when you look at it like it's very out of order if you kind of look at the numbers but it's basically an episode that is sort of a investigate the first episode is sort of a in medias res we're in the main brunt of the story and they do an investigation but we don't have any backstory then it's part one of the backstory then it's another one of those investigations set a little before the first one we saw then it's part two of the backstory. It's actually very um, 
like smooth and I think smart as a structure, it feels very disorienting. And I think why it feels so disorienting is that they've they've completely reversed sort of, I think, your usual sensibility of sort of how exposition works and that anything that is explained in this series, you wind up having seen in action first. And so you have mm -hmm. some kind of understanding of it. So like before you get any literal explanation of what Shiki is doing in seeing the seams of things, in touching death, in, in eliminating and cutting out death and all of that, you've seen her do it and you've seen a visual in the film version, at least representation of it. And you have some kind of like, you probably can't verbalize what this thing is that is happening, but you have some measure of understanding of it. And then it is verbalized in the following episode of most of these things in episode four. And there's all sorts of things like that. Like uh, I might be off base on this, but my, my sense is that all those scenes in episode one, where Shiki is walking around alone at night, she's not actually walking around at alone because she sees this whole other world that we see in episode mm -hmm. four where she sees spirits and lines and all this stuff it looks empty to us but it probably isn't to her and that's the whole thing is like you get this sense of her behavior and you get a sense of who she is as a person and how she moves through the world and then you get an exposition for it later um that's not unheard of in storytelling obviously often you have kind of a show don't tell sort of thing but i like how this really reverses causality in a way that makes it more interesting and also because the ideas are so out there mystic eyes of death perception like literally like you can see the lines of death and the seams and all of that that's a crazy idea mm -hmm. it's a hard idea i think if you were to introduce that with exposition it would feel like gobbledygook i think because you reverse sort of the narrative order here it actually you are able to engage with it much more smoothly i think yeah and i think yeah i, I like that because it does like you have no choice but to sort of get used to it, right? You have to become right. like accustomed to the tone and style of the world. And then once you're sort of like immersed in it, then it's then it gives you those explanations. Um, because, yeah, I'm with you that I think if you just threw immediately at the audience, here's the mystic eyes of death perception. This is what Shiki is. I mean, one, it would just bog down the beginning of the story so much with super, super heavy exposition. Um but then it also, as you say, it would kind of sound too much like fantasy gobbledygook, whereas we know who Shiki is now. We, like, care about her as a character. There's lots of things we don't understand about her, but there are things, there are lots of little things that you pick up about her, whether you realize it or not, that are informing your perception that then is getting, like, reevaluated and evolved as you get these different pieces filled in, right? And part of that is also, like, the way that she speaks, which the movie four is really critical for, right? Yes. You have these different versions of her the way that she speaks in the modern day timeline, you have the two different versions of her in movie two. And then in movie three, you get this a little bit of talk at the end about like Shiki, you know, all quote unquote, like all caps Shiki or the, the other, the male Shiki persona that seems to not be there is you get a hint of that at the end of movie three. And then movie four, you learn what that means. And you see the Shiki like between those two states of her trying to sort of her leaving behind the persona you saw in movie two, her moving into the persona that we are already familiar with in movies one and three that she sort of claims at the end of the fourth movie. Um, yes. But we literally see like, the identity constructed because, yes. and I like that, like the moment that for me kicked this all into gear was when she cuts the hair off and she uh -huh. is like, she's thrown the knife and the first thing she does is alter her body in a way that sort of 
claims a new sort of like composite identity and becomes that sort of more androgynous figure we see in one and three where like gender is hard to pinpoint on her and she'd had this very split divided gender between the two shikis male and female like they really go heavy on that in movie four like uh, let's not call her all caps or him all caps shiki let's say they're shiki kun because that's what yes. toko always calls him using the it, that's a male um honorific shiki kun a male like younger honorific and so you have shiki kun and you have shiki um and now they kind of there's some composite of that going on mm -hmm. yes absolutely um and i think one of the things that i found very interesting is from in my memory movie four did not like stand out a lot um and rewatching it this is this might be actually my favorite of the four movies we've watched so far it's fantastic on rewatch like it's i just had like i think forgotten about like a lot of what like i remember that this is the one with her in the hospital and this is where you get some of the explanations but i had just forgotten about like the tone and the style and this is the one that to me is the most visually impressive it's got so many fascinating visuals um and i think that's one of the things that makes this whole like trick work is that when you get to this fourth movie you like this movie is technically full of exposition Right, it is full of the like cause for the effect that we have already seen in movies one and three, right? Um, like this is how we get this character to the thing we have seen in movies one and three, and in lots of stories that would be a really boring thing because it's like, well, I don't care about what the cause is because we've already spent so much time with the effect. Like, what's the point of giving the exposition or the setup for the payoff that we have already seen? Um, but here they make it so rich and engaging and part of it pushing it into this like very kind of metaphysical space, um, which is, is the most metaphysical feeling of all of them with multiple sort of like pseudo psychedelic sequences of um, of Shiki in her consciousness, like on the, the literal boundary of nothingness, right? The Kata no Kyokai of the title of the show. Like this is where you're you're like seeing it be visualized effectively for you. Um, I, I found movie four like absolutely riveting. Uh, and, it, and it shows how like effective this like weird structure they go for is that you're able to get that exposition technically set up step in movie four out of sequence, but have it be arguably like the best of the four movies we've seen so far. So, yeah, I totally agree. I don't know which one I would say like is my personal like favorite or best. I would have to like see these again and think about it. Um, but it is extremely striking. And I think it's so clear like you would not make this stretch of story the same way if you were doing it in sequence, right? Yes. Like you could technically watch these in the order of two, four, three, one, which is the order they chronologically happen in. It would work, but like they were made out of that order. And it's so clear that like this stage, which is like the key exposition, like almost end of first act of a story stage, mm -hmm. right? Where like you've, you've now revealed the character their motivations who they are now they're going to go out into the world and have their adventure this is almost like if in an almost hero's journey-esque sense this is the movie where shiki answers the call right uh -huh. yeah. um and that's the end of the film um but if you were to do that in place as like the second movie or as the second half of the first batch of the story um you would have to emphasize things very differently you wouldn't be able to make it as interestingly metaphysical you wouldn't be able to make it as sort of emotive as it is and because this is coming at the end of all of this stuff like we're we've seen parts of the second act of this story already and now we're going back and finishing the first act um 
you know, you're just attuned to it in a very different way. And they're able to do these extremely dynamic scenes. Because this is also the shortest episode. This is 45 mm-hmm. minutes, but it's 45 minutes with credits and some after credit scenes. So it's really like under 40 for the main action of the episode. And the main action is pretty simple. It's Shiki's in the hospital. There was a car accident. And she wakes up. And she has this vision that, you know, is kind of, it makes her want to claw her eyes out. And then you have Toko come in and kind of set her straight and figure it out. And then she accepts it at the end. It's a very simple, like, layer of story in that sense. But they're able to really flesh it out and make it just, again, so incredibly striking. And there's some really virtuosic stuff in the second half of this episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's that thing where it's like, honestly, like, this is, I'm pretty sure this is shorter than, for instance, the first episode of Fate Zero. Like, if you take out the post credit scene and stuff, the first episode of Fate Zero is a double length episode. They do the same thing for Fate's Day Night. There are a couple of double double length episodes there. I'm the season sure two premiere of Kimetsu no Yaiba is longer yes. than this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is like, you know, even though this was, you know, this was released in theaters, it is technically a movie. It is like very short. Um, but it's like, but what's interesting is that it's got so little story. Like you could make this a normal 22 minute episode of anime. Like you could cover all the story of this right. easily within a normal episode of like normal run length of a TV episode of anime. Um, but they use this like that time to really like sit with it. And that's one of the things I love about it. It, it I think it stylistically is much more like the first movie than the second or third. Like it's, there's very quiet there's not yeah. nearly as much dialogue. The third movie has lots of dialogue. So much that I wish the third movie was a little bit longer, having read the book, because I think there's some stuff that, like, the book's a little bit more um, sort of luxurious in its pace. Like, it takes a little bit more time to get places. Um, I, I wish that there was a little bit more dead space in the third movie to play around with. The fourth movie, there's so much just, like, feeling this space of this hospital room and sitting there with Shiki. Um, and then also, you know, getting some of these scenes with, with Kokto, um, not being able to see her and him on his own, um, the puppy dog, as, as the two nurses call him, which I love that little scene um, in the background. Uh, but I think one of the things that makes it effective is just you have that sort of dead air to sit with the characters and experience the tone and the vibe of what, of what this, like, basically couple of days of Shiki's life is like waking up from this coma. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's it's the first episode where Shiki sort of feels like the main character uh-huh. because we're we are in her finally. Like we there's there's an internality that we have access to this time. She is very much a character of surface, not that she isn't a rich, deep character, but in those first three episodes, intentionally we are at an arm's length removal and we are kind of questioning what is under the surface of this mysterious person. Here we are brought in and literally like see the world as she sees it. And we see the horror of like that sequence of her like getting hit by the car, which we don't see the actual event. We see like a representation of it, like a, like a, on a black screen and blood flies, mm-hmm. right? And But we see this vision of her like in the land of death. I don't know how else to describe it, but like seeing the void make like this movie makes the concept of as if the concept of death couldn't be scarier there's something that's like there's a very palpable horror to it as it is like um perceived here and all of that is just so striking and then she wakes up and she's seeing ghosts and there's all this extra visual data because she's seeing death on everything and then she goes into like we don't see exactly what she does to her eyes but there's a it's a very classic anime cut where you cut to black and then do a sound effect Um, and it's very it's a classic for a reason (laughs) you know something that many have used Uh, and then you know she is in literally has her eyes closed off from the world for most of the remaining episode it's in it's 
it's virtuosic. It really is. Yeah. And I think one of the things of the, the out of sequence storytelling that's really useful is that it allows you to get into Shiki's head, right? It's because yeah. you both know like who she was before this point in movie two, even if there's like, you know, there's obviously lots of mystery of like what was going on with those killings, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then you also know what is she like after this point? Who, who does she become after this is something you also know. And so I think, you know, you're able to preserve the mystique of Shiki as a character because there is still an ongoing mystique to her. Um, but because you have both those sort of either sides of this character filled out from a distance, now that you're in this midpoint, like you as the audience are in a privilege, like a position of privilege over the character. You know where she is going and she does not yet. So you have like an almost more kind of like paternal um, kind of perspective you can take because or like parental perspective you can take on her because I know where you're going. I know you're going to be OK. Like, you're going to yeah. eventually, you know, you're going to be reunited with Mikia. You're going to become a badass with a knife. and You're going to be killing ghosts and shit. Like, you know where she's heading. And I think that allows you to kind of be in this moment of, like, real vulnerability with Shiki without it destroying the bigger mystique of the character. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, and I just think it's it's so interesting to see, yeah, because this is a middle point between the person she was and the person she becomes, and we have access to both of those. And so the real drama of the episode isn't, is she going to survive and get her eyesight back and all of that? We know, and, and I think if you were telling this in a more conventional order or as a normal 25 minute of television, that would be the tension, right? It's mm -hmm. something like, okay, she's been hit by a car and she's been in a coma and she's tried to claws her eyes out. Is she going to be Okay. That's taken off the table. It's more like, what is the specific thing that's going to drive her to become the person we see in these other movies, you know? And so, like, that's why the big triumphant moment of this episode is the getting the knife and cutting the hair and all of that. And this is combined, and I think this is the most maybe virtuosic moment in, in the series so far, is the... It's a moment that sadly is mangled on the Crunchyroll version of the episode. Mm -hmm. But it is where you have her kind of in the fight, and you have uh, Kokto in the office where he goes into the room with all the prosthetics. It's a very creepy room. And there's this like doll that I, I know you probably can't tell. I'm sure this is going to come up again, but it almost seems to me like it's a doll of like the evil, like Shiki Kun male Shiki or something, but he sits next to it and he starts singing, singing in the rain, the song from the, the musical. Uh, and it's completely acapella. There's no music under it. Um, he also had hummed it in episode two to her in that scene we talked about last time. Uh, and he's singing, and we see these memories of them. We also see her on that boundary. We see uh, these these things kind of flash together, and then it comes and ends in you know the hair cutting and like getting into the action of it. And it's such a amazing sequence. Sadly, in the and I didn't even realize this until like the Crunchyroll version removed "Singing in the Rain." probably for rights issues. Although I'm a little confused by that. I can tell you why. Mm -hmm. um, but they removed it, but they left the subtitles in. So I knew something was off and I went and torrented the episode and found the actual version and it's incredible. Um, and they also had fucked it up in movie two because of this. Yes, I, I had uh, maybe been watching the, uh, what how I had watched these movies originally. I was not actually watching these on Crunchyroll, so I did not realize. And I had forgotten because um, I, I think I had forgotten that it was Singing in the Rain, so I didn't even recognize the tune in movie two, partially because it, it it's one of those things where it's like, it sounds very familiar. I was like, oh, well, it sounds familiar because it's the Cotton no Kyokai soundtrack. And I was like, oh, wait, no, that's fucking Singing in the Rain. Um, but yeah. yes. Um, yeah, so um, I have not seen the Crunchyroll version. So, like, so is there just no 
Like, is it just silent with subtitles on the screen? No, like, so it is a, it, it is humming, but it's humming of something like completely nondescript, hmm. uh, which is very weird. Like, and in, in that, I didn't notice it in episode two, which makes sense. Um, because in episode two, it's it's just it, it is it is also humming like it doesn't really ruin it if you don't know it's there, but it's just a it's not a um, it's not an, a knowable tune. It's not like something you would have heard before. But then in this one, it is that same kind of nondescript humming, but it feels like it's off. Like it just feels like the sound mix is off there because there's just so much. And then of course the sub, but they left the subtitles for it, so it's still uh-huh. the subtitles are the lyrics to singing in the rain. Like I was wondering, like is this like in the Japanese version, there are Japanese subtitles here, and it's just the lyrics, but it's not the music. Like, what the heck is going on? That's why I went and torn it and figured it out. And like, what was this scene? Because something is off, clearly. Um, and yeah, it's it's singing in the rain. Uh, I am confused why the rights are in doubt because that song is ninety years old. Um, I think people know that song from the movie Singing in the Rain from nineteen fifty two. A lot of people don't know Singing in the Rain is a jukebox musical. It's all mm-hmm. m- music that was written for other movies by the Freed unit at MGM, the Arthur Freed unit. Uh, and Singing in the Rain is one of their early hits. That song, yeah, it's from 1929. It's from the Hollywood Review of 20, 1929, which is a, that movie ends with a big uh, musical number where it's a big choir singing it. And it's in color. It's one of the first Hollywood sequences in color. It's two-tone Technicolor. So it's that really ugly red and green color scheme. This is before three-strip Technicolor. Uh, so I'm not, I don't understand how that song is under copyright to the degree that it would mess this up, but for some reason it is, I guess. And, uh, they had to cut it out for the Crunchyroll version and it's definitely, definitely don't watch that version. It, it ruins a phenomenal moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great sequence. First thing is also, it's like, I like that it's, it's really like Susan Marie Kenichi, you know, is playing Kokto is the one singing it. And I think they've like very intentionally made, it's like, don't make it sound like a dude singing like make it sound like someone quietly singing to themselves and nobody can quietly sing to themselves and sound good like you can't because you just can't produce the voice for it if you're trying to sort of like do it a little bit like under your breath um and so it's a object and it just feels like he's like really close up tight on the mic and just very quietly to himself singing the song um but it's something that adds so much to the tone that it's that it is this like very intimate moment you're sharing with him as he's remembering Shiki. Um, right. And, and you get, and he remembers this line that Toko told him earlier about how like the, the thing you need to do to help her is to treat her like the way you always did, like, like pick your relationship back up with her basically. Um, and it's him remembering that friendship and that relationship and saying that to himself as she in the hospital is fighting a crazy zombie man. Um, but obviously like is also finding herself and, and kind of rebuilding who she is as a person um, at the same time. It's such an interesting choice of song because this, it's a great song, but it's this weird kind of chintzy love letter song Mm -hmm. that is, you know, the lyrics are, I'm singing, I'm singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling. I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds. So dark up above the sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love. But it's like, it's like going back out into the world again is the kind of lyrics it is. Mm -hmm. If you kind of read it a little deeper, you know, it's the, because they do, they do the whole first verse of all the way down to like the, I walk down the lane with a happy refrain, singing, singing in the rain. Um, and, you know, the stormy clouds are going to chase everyone else, but I'm still out here. Uh, and it's one of those great uses of a song where they they spin it because of the usage in such a way that you see a different depth in it than I think I would have seen from that song mm-hmm. before. Where it's kind of silly, but it is like it. 
it it does refer to both Kokto, Kokto and Shiki in this moment, right? Of that, like, Kokto is ready to kind of restart this friendship, and Shiki is literally getting her groove on again. <laughs> it's her murder uh-huh. groove on, right? And is, like, coming back out. And so it's silly and it's chintzy in that way, but it is also, like, weirdly meaningful. And if he were belting it out, it'd be the cheesiest fucking thing in the world yes. and it wouldn't work at all. But because he's singing it softly to himself and it's just something that's kind of come to mind. And last time it's from this memory where he was humming it while standing near her. And now he's fully vocalizing it. Uh, again, this is, and, and you combine it with just the amazing kind of, you know, fast editing, you know, visuals that some are part flashback and memory and some are action it's a really interesting melding of the sort of internal reality of these two characters through this kind of cheesy old song uh, that he's singing to himself almost non-consciously. Yeah. Um, and then it ultimately culminates, as you say, in her cutting her hair. Um, and then she has a line that I did not remember where this was in the movies, but um, Shiki is also a character in Fake Grand Order. Um, and, she, and I have used her a lot because she's really good in that game and she's super fucking cool. Uh, but when you use her special move in that game, she says the line she says here where she kills the zombie. So I've heard it like a thousand times, you know, the way you do with a, that kind of line in a video game where she says, uh, Shino katamari ga ore no mai ni tatsun janai. And then in the game, she cuts everybody up and the lines of death appear and it fucking explodes. <laughs> and she says it here. Um, there's something I love about that. It's like you basically like you, you know, walking pile of death. Like, don't you dare stand in front of me. Like you're not like not worthy to stand in front of me. And that's a really big moment because that is also the first time I believe that this version of Shiki has used Ore as a personal pronoun. Um, so like she is, she is kind of going, you know, she's on this edge. And so she's saying Watashi for most of the fourth film when she's alone in the hospital bed. Um, again, Watashi is like a female personal pronoun. That's the one she used, the female persona of Shiki used in high school. Ore is what the male persona used. The male persona has died seemingly um, or is gone, right? And so Shiki is now alone for the first time ever in her life because she doesn't have this sort of like symbiotic alternative personality that coexisted with her. And Toko, you know, has all these interesting explanations about how that stuff worked in this movie. Um, But so she is having to establish for herself what her personality is and who she is now. And that's the moment where she kind of like declares that because we have seen in movies one and three, she typically uses Ore to refer to herself. Um, And that's part of like the androgynous quality of the character. That's why in the first movie, it ends with this moment of Mikia stating that she's a girl um, because he knows from his perspective, this is the female Shiki because the male Shiki died. Um, but we see this as like a more androgynous character because she is like navigating this weird paradigm and she has chosen for whatever reason to speak, to, to use the same kind of words that male Shiki used to use, but in the much more stoic, stern way that female Shiki speaks. And so it's like a melding of the two different speaking styles that she brings together when she says, Ore no mai ni tatsun janai and cuts the dude apart. Well, it's what I love about this whole ending sequence is it it is literally her in real time forging her new identity, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because she is someone, we saw this, this is kind of the central action of movie two is that she's stuck. She like is the heiress to this family and she is like, her femininity is not something that is really affirmatively chosen, right? It is something that is a role she has to play as like the lady of this house wearing the kimono, 
all of that stuff. But it's it's also a little confused by like the kendo training and the male Shiki doing his thing in her body and all of that. And in this moment, like cutting the hair, choosing a pronoun, all of these things. Like I, I can see like this, it could be extremely powerfully read as just a clear trans allegory in that mm-hmm. way, you know, obviously. Um, but just the, the, the basic idea of like melding parts of her identity and being like, this is how I'm going to wear my hair. This is how I'm going to speak. And then this is how I'm going to kick ass. Uh, and I like how it kind of melds all of that into this person who, whatever else, however mysterious they are, Shiki in episodes one and three is very self-confident. <laughs> I think yes. you could say there's a sense of self there going on, especially in episode three. I think you see she's kept a little more mysterious in episode one. Uh, and I love seeing how that all comes into into being. Yeah, absolutely. What else have we not covered in this episode, Sean? I mean, I guess I want to like talk a little bit about the visuals of this episode because I think this is the most visually striking, like alongside the first movie, which was also particularly good looking um, yeah. in terms of how it was directed and stuff. But this movie has um, it, it has a little bit more of that kind of UFO table look. It doesn't have as much as it doesn't have like a lot of big, crazy 3D shots and stuff like that. But they're using like 3D enhancements to a lot of sequences to make it look really good. Like all yeah. their effects works with the spirits look so striking. And in particular, the um, the kind of metaphysical sequences where she is on the boundary of emptiness, right? That visualization of death you were talking about as this like horizon with a weird, almost like eclipse in the middle um, and some of the other weird spaces that she like visualizes herself in in the coma um, are really striking looking. In particular, there's a shot where it's like like it's just like kind of these weird clouds and it almost looks kind of space-esque and there's like these red clouds around the edge of the frame and it's something where like they bring that whatever that effect is back again at the end where after she kills the zombie the sunrise happens and you get this beautiful shot of like the horizon with the sunrise in the clouds and i've been looking at it it's almost like hard to tell what are you even looking at like is this just 2D animation? Is this like a painting? Is it 3D? Like, and I think it's an it's a combination of a lot of different composite elements put together to create this almost kind of like otherworldly aesthetic where there are some, there's like a depth to some of like the clouds and stuff. And the way that the lighting w- looks doesn't quite just look like like an animation. Um, it looks like it has a 3D quality, but there's a very like painterly look to some elements that clearly are totally 2D. Um, and it's just a really beautiful looking like sequences of images that they have that kind of bookend the movie with like the kind of astral weird metaphysics stuff at the beginning and then that being kind of replicated visually with the images of like the clouds in the sunrise at the very end after she's triumphant um i just found this movie in particular to be quite striking on a visual level oh it's incredible and again like we're so we're in 2008 now this movie was may 2008 and I just, I think about other anime from 2008, and there's plenty of, you know, extremely impressive stuff. That's the year Miyazaki's Ponyo comes out. But in a very, it's intent different, it's technology different. What UFO Table is doing here in like how to bring in 3D elements to change and evolve and transform sort of the basic style of anime, they're just light years ahead of everyone. It's incredible, like the, how far they are pushing that. And again, it's it's through these kind of experiments that we will eventually get stuff like Kimetsu no Yaiba, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's already just so ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah. So all that stuff I love. One other thing I want to shout out, because we've talked before on the last episode how good Susan Mary Kenichi is as, as Kokto and how good especially Sakamoto Maya is as Shiki. 
Um, but in these two episodes, particularly episode four, you get a lot more of Toko. Um, yes. And so Honda Takako, who voices Toko, is so good in these movies. And one thing that's interesting about her is that she's much more prolific as like a live action dub actress. Like if you look at her Wikipedia page in particular, it is like a deep, deep, deep list of um, live action dub credits. And she is obviously she's done plenty of anime and games and stuff like that. She plays um, a, a kind of a character who's more prominent in early Naruto called Anko, but she sticks around. She becomes a less prominent character. So she's in some stuff like Naruto. Um, you know, she's around. Um, and so she's good in what she's in, but she's not really known much as an anime um, actress. And so her coming in and doing this role, like I just find it so impressive. In particular, in these two movies, you get a lot more of that. Like it's made explicitly clear that she kind of is doing two characters right like toko is like puts on this like performance seemingly where it's like kind of glasses toko and she's like that sometimes on the phone she's like that when she's very like affable and she's very talkative and she's very friendly you know so the first time she comes into shiki's room she's like that and she's very much like playing it up as like i'm like this nice lady i'm trying to help you and like she's you know you know, she when she comes as like, hey, hi, how you doing? What's up? Like, that's kind of how she enters the hospital room. But then there's that much more serious, the like mage Toka, like the one like this is the real one where she takes off the glasses and she's much more intense. And she has that like severe, like strict logical process by which she like understands and breaks the world down. And this like intensity with which she does it. And those two different versions of the character that she kind of flows between that I think is reflective also of some of the things that Shiki learns how to do herself um, that Toko is much more effective at um, and is kind of mastered. Uh, I think it's just like a really, really great performance. Yeah, I mean, this episode is effectively our actual introduction to Toko because we learn mm -hmm. she's a magist and we learn like kind of what her business is and all of that stuff. We see how she and Kokto sort of get together. It's like a part-time job for him at first that is a bit off more than he could chew there. Um, it's kind of crazy, but I love all that. I love that she plays kind of almost a mentor role to Shiki in this because she mm -hmm. has some understanding of what this sort of like split is. Uh, and yeah, I love looking down uh, Toko, uh, Tanako Honda's... Um, Wikipedia because she's the official actor for Mila Jovovich, Halle Berry, Charlize Theron, Hilary Swank, Rosario Dawson, Sandra Bullock. That's a lot of like major Hollywood actors. I think that's very so that's a that's a big set of roles. And there is kind of a it is a slightly different performance than I think you would get from someone who mm -hmm. mostly does anime. Um and because it, and it's in some ways the showiest of the performances at least in these first four episodes because of those different shifts because she kind of has the biggest personality um but I do, you know, kind of everyone in this is playing multiple characters in some sense, you know, just because of like time passing mm -hmm. uh, or Maya Sakamoto is like literally playing multiple versions of Shiki and her evolving and changing identity. Um, but it's a it's a hell of a cast. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, eventually we will do, you know, on our short list of topics we're definitely doing for Japan, Japan Animation Station is the Mari Okada um topic you know with like yes. uh anohana and stuff like that and the other really big anime role that takako honda has done that is really impressive is she is in hanasaki iroha one of the early um shows that okada wrote where she plays the main it's a dual role where she both plays the main character's mother and grandmother it's very impressive um so it's nice. like she's so she's a really skilled actress um and has done a lot of stuff other stuff in anime as well that is really good but this is like the thing Every time I like have watched this and this character, um, 
it's kind of like it has like some cameo stuff in other spinoffs and things like Toko has a larger life in the Nasuverse. We're not going to see much of her in anything past what we're watching for Kata no Kyokai. She might pop up here or there a little bit. Um, but this character is like easily her most famous and well-known character um, in anime. Um, and Toko is like a, a pretty big fan favorite, I think, for a very good reason. Um, it's one of the reasons why that character is brought back up when they do some of the other like spin-offs of the broader kind of magic world or whatever of of the Nasu uh, verse. Yeah. So, other things to mention. Uh, I love the CG skits on both of these, or not yes. CG claymation. The, sorry, yeah, claymation um, skits. Yeah, the first one, or in part three, you get an anti-smoking PSA. But the joke <laughs> is that they're just cigarette, they're chocolate cigarettes. Yes. Um, my favorite part of that though is at the very beginning of it, you've got like the cat girl in the audience does a yes. big meow. My dog does not usually pay attention to what is going on on the TV, but when that meow happened, Phoebe like shot up and like looked at the TV and was like. What the fuck is that? I'm like, it's just a, it's a weird cat girl on the TV, Phoebe. It doesn't make sense to me either. Uh, and then in part four, you get everyone annoying Shiki because they're eating and drinking loudly. And so she pulls out the knife and then fights a big clay cross. I'm not sure what that meant, but I do like yes. these as PSAs. Yeah, they're very good. Um, all those other characters, by the way, just to give you the context, um, all the characters in there that are not kind of no Kyokai characters are other type moon characters. So okay. like... The cat girl is is a is called Neko Arc, and she is like a cat version of the main one of the main characters from Tsukihime and stuff. There's some Fate Stay Night characters in <laughs> okay. there. Um, so just so you know, like who who are all these like mysterious people? Some of them are people that you will come to know uh, eventually. Um, so wonderful. Yes, that's that's what that weird cast is. I might have to, I, I had an idea last night watching these, I might have to like cut these out and like get clips of them and start using these like as intros for my, like my screenings at school. Like when I show students movies, it would be so funny to just put these at the beginning as like the pre-roll for the movie. That'd be very fun. Yeah, because they have no dialogue, you know, so they're right. just like, it's just pure visual gags yeah. and storytelling. So they would, yeah, they would definitely work that way. Yeah, no smoking kids. There's another, there's lots <laughs> of reasons not to smoke. We're in a school, but yeah, no smoking <laughs> Man, that would be crazy if a kid tries to like, start smoking in the middle of like a school um, viewing. Uh, I've seen people vape. I, that, that happens, definitely. I've not seen anyone light up a cigarette. That would be an extra level of like, you know. Like, just, man, you just don't give a fuck, huh? <laughs> I love it. Especially weird because in my living memory, you could do that. But oh well. Anyway, yeah. the world has changed fast. So, okay, we've got that. The ending songs. Two fucking bangers. I mean, yes. they all are by Calafina, but I particularly love the one for part four, uh, mm -hmm. Aria, which yeah. I listened to again today. Just, oh man, what a banger. Yeah, Aria is definitely one of my one of my favorites. Kizu Ato, which is the number three one, um, is also very good. But yeah, I think of, yeah. of the ones we've done so far, um, Oblivious and Aria are like my, but I've listened to those songs a lot because they're really good. Yes. Um, so and I, I've been listening to them and I think, uh, the, the lyrics on Scars I really liked, and I think the way mm. they reflect the the movie is really beautiful. Aria, just the way it, it's kind of the same as Oblivious, the way it kind of plays with either literally the th musical themes from the episode or just the general sort of like dark choral tone that um, Yuji Kajiura, Yuki Kajiura uses is like really striking. And it just is like this song kind of exemplifies Kara no Kyokai. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's conceptually, I would just love everything about how the music works, right? That you have like you that she created this band basically to make music for these movies that then like was so successful that they get their own albums. And like and what a hell of like a basically a first album, because their first album is more or less yeah. all their ending themes for Kata no Kyokai and then a couple of other songs. 
Um, but then also part of it is that obviously Calafina does all of the choral work in the main soundtrack of which there is a lot. And so that's just like more things should do something like that because it's so cool. It creates such a unified feel to the music because even, you know, in some of her other projects where you still have where you have like a good like original ending theme that feels like a natural extension of the themes you heard, the musical themes and the narrative themes in the movie, something like Homura. But you don't necessarily have like Lisa's voice isn't playing all throughout the soundtrack of that movie. And Silas, I don't know if it necessarily needs to. But there is something very cool about having that unity of it is both a thematically appropriate original song that is in the style of and using some of the musical leitmotifs of the main movie. Also, throughout the movie, you are hearing the choral like vocal stylings of that band that sings the ending credit song, too. Yeah, it's... You know, it's very striking. I can't imagine ever turning off, the, like, in the middle of the credits, one of these movies. You know, I'm going to sit there and listen to it and read the lyrics, and it's great. Yes. And then particularly for this one, you also, it's good to watch the, after it because you have a pretty meaty post credit scene that sets up movie five. Um, that I particularly want to mention just because it's it's very notable that it is the first time we we have heard the the incredible deep sonorous voice of Nakata Joji, who is an actor we are going to hear a lot of because he is in literally every single thing that we are watching for <laughs> uh, because he's an actor that they like to come back to. He plays a very very prominent character in Fate Zero and the same character um, in Fate Stay Night, Unlimited Blade Works, and so on and so forth. Heaven's Feel. Um, and he also plays a character in the fifth. He's the main villain or whatever, like the other main prominent character in movie five. And we get to hear a little bit of him at the end because he is this mysterious figure that has been setting up some of the foes that she has fought in the first movie, the third movie, and another character that we will encounter again later um, that he also we, we get set up. We see briefly in that post uh, movie scene. And it's just as soon as I heard his voice, I'm like, yes, he's finally he's finally here. Because, again, we're going to hear a lot of this guy. And it is it's so good. I think it's a really good use of a post credit scene because there is this sense you get to the end of episode four, you get to the credits and it's like, OK, we've the table is set. I think I understand this. I can read back in episodes one and three. There's some mysteries remaining, like what was going on with all that fucking murder in episode two. Yeah. But. I do have a very clear sense, it, like for our next mystery of the week, whatever it will be, I know these characters and where they're coming from. And it feels like clearly we're moving into part two of whatever this story is. And I think having that sense and then getting this heretofore unintimated sense that there is another villain out there who's kind of pulling the strings. Really, I I really wanted to just move on and watch the, the big movie that is part five because I'm very excited to see what they do. Like it makes a lot of sense to me that after this episode, the next one is the big full feature length two hour movie yeah. because it feels like it's time to really cut loose. And I'm, I've heard good things about episode five from you yeah. and others. So I'm super, super excited for the next episode. I mean, there is a reason why I like reordered the way we were doing these to clear the plate so that episode five could be its own episode. Cause I looked at it and I was like, there's no way we're doing like <laughs> two movies. And like one of them is uh, episode five. So yes, next time, on Japanimation Station, we will be diving into the fifth movie for Kata no Kyokai, The Paradox Spiral. Japanimation Station Oh, 